Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Ninja Tune and Cold Cut founder Matt Black. First of all, I think it's very interesting that last week on-demand streams dropped not only in the United States, but globally as well. You would think because of everyone having lots of downtime, that in fact that wouldn't be a problem, and we would have an uptick in the number of music streams. That wasn't the case. Well, in the U.S., streams were pretty good. It was still the third largest amount in 2020, but they were down. Interestingly enough, on Spotify, the global number was down 11%. And if you look to Italy, which is really getting pounded with coronavirus, that was way down, 33%. Now, there's a theory on this that, in fact, one of the reasons why everything was down so much was because there was just one frontline major release. That was Lil Uzi Vert that came out. But that was it. So, of course, new releases, especially big releases by superstars, they drive streaming. They drive most of them, and there was none. So everyone thinks that what may happen is streams will go back up, even while we have this imposed downtime. But what will happen is we'll migrate from listening to those major releases to going more to catalog, which I think is better for everybody if that happens. The music business got hit with a double whammy here because Amazon stopped taking physical product into their warehouses. So they're not taking CDs, nor are they taking vinyl to sell on the website. That's not a problem for any of the physical product that, in fact, is cataloged, meaning more than 18 months. It is a problem for anything that's new. But again, in the United States, that was worth over a billion dollars in business last year. So the music business is kind of hurting from that, at least in the short term. We'll see what happens next week. If we take streaming over into the video side, it's really interesting there because it's up like crazy. As a matter of fact, they call it the lockdown bump. It's up so much that the EU asked Netflix and YouTube to stop broadcasting in HD or else they'd have to put a cap on it. So I think what's interesting here is people are watching more TV and listening to less music, at least less streaming music. We'll see if that continues as our lockdown continues. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowundercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. And finally, I just want to tell you that in this time of imposed downtime, check out my free ebook and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosensky.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now I was reading an article on smart speakers and we're talking about mostly the amazon kind the echo and how much has gone into them there's a lot of intelligence that are in these little boxes that sell for not that much money but it got me thinking that maybe this is the future for professional monitors as well 
Now, it's true that professional monitors have had internal intelligence for a long time, and it's mostly to smooth out the problems of the transducer. So this has been going on for some time, but if we take the technology of the common smart speaker and port it over, I think we might have some interesting advancements that could happen. So what's in a smart speaker? Well, it's the intelligent virtual assistant, which means you can talk to it, but there's also a microphone array, and that's for beamforming, acoustic echo cancellation, and noise suppression, mostly to determine the direction of the listener when the listener talks. But that could be used in a professional monitor as well, if you think about it. It could be used for acoustic control, so you wouldn't have to tune your room. It could be used to understand how many people were in the room, so it could direct the beam directly at them. And in doing so, you can get the exact stereo or the exact immersion pattern that is perfect for that environment. It can also cancel out environments or cancel out any bad reflections. So if you have a room that's really reflective, or you have lots of glass on one side, something that's a worst-case scenario, or lots of glass behind you, it's possible that we can have a smart speaker that can overcome that. Now, I'm not saying that this is on the market now. For all I know, it may be in development right now, but I haven't heard of this. I'm just kind of speculating that maybe this is the next direction for speaker design and speaker manufacturing. Anyway, look out for it, because I think it's kind of inevitable that we're going to go there sooner or later. My guest today is Matt Black, the co-founder of the leading indie record label Ninja Tune and electronic music pioneer duo Cold Cut. Cold Cut has remixed and created productions for the likes of James Brown, Queen Latifah, Eurythmics, In Excess, Blondie, and many others, while Ninja Tune has been visionary with its selection of artists emphasizing interactive technology and innovative uses of software. Matt is also one of the people behind the creation of the VJAM software used in Cold Cut live shows. This led to designing the widely acclaimed app Ninja Jam and now the new Jam Pro, which features multi-track recording, inter-app audio, built-in sub-bass module, smart pitch bins, and so much more. During the interview, we spoke about the Ninja Tune philosophy, the string of DJ products that Matt has developed, the 25-year evolution of Jam Pro, and much more. I spoke with Matt via Skype from his office in London. Let's start from the beginning. Tell me how you got into the music business. Well, as a young boy, I was always interested in messing around with, with sound. And I had a collection of sort of robots and sort of toy moon vehicles. I used to charge my family a penny for, to come in and, and see them with the lights off. And my mum my, my said, oh, yes, it's a sound and light show, Matthew. So a bit of encouragement from my mum sort of set me down that task. I used to mess around with radios and um, uh, then at school I had a geeky little posse of friends and we started doing a disco there. We found some old equipment one day outside the the youth club being thrown out and we took that on and started doing some discos in a radio station at school and then I got interested in building a synthesizer. This is all pretty much in the sort of early to mid-70s. Um, and then at college, you know, I, I just was always a music lover and I wanted to do it, but I didn't have any musical training. For some reason, my sister was uh, sent to, to off for piano lessons. Um, and I don't know if I 
was asked if I wanted to do it, but for whatever reason, I didn't get that um, sort of formal music training, but I always loved sound and music. So uh, by the time I got to college, I formed a little band and um, learned to play, well, not really, didn't really learn to play keyboards, learned to make sounds <laughs> on synthesizers. <laughs> um, and then I've had another crew of friends. So my college friends are still my best friends now, actually. We celebrated 40 years a couple of months ago since we were at uni together. And um, yeah, we got really into into music, particularly sort of black music like funk and reggae and soul and dub and African music. Um, and then hip hop and electro started coming through and we were banging into that as well. We used to get follow the American import scene very closely and try and get these incredible records from New York and elsewhere. Um, and uh, started making tapes, which I guess would be called mixtapes now, where we sort of try and make party tapes by editing tracks together. Um, and then I sort of managed to managed to make it into a career after uh, a few years of messing around as a computer programmer. But my love was really of music and DJing. So at 28, I started Cold Cut, met Jonathan Moore, my partner, and we've been doing that ever since. That's rather late to start doing what you're doing. You have a, a big run-up and obviously a, a, lots of background, but most people start when they're a lot younger. Yeah, but I think, um, well, it's interesting that that's been my story. I, I, I would note that with um, young people, that over here in the UK, they're forced to make decisions about what it is that they want to do with their life at too early a stage, I would say. There's a lot of sort of getting people on onto tracks and rails. And um, I think, well, as I say, from my own experience, I didn't work out really what I wanted to do until a bit later. I said I did a degree in biochemistry. I, I worked as a computer programmer for a couple of years. But um, I managed to sort of take my hobby and my passion and make a career out of it. But it took a while to really focus on that and make it happen. Give me some background on Cold Cut. Yeah, well... Cold Cut were formed in 1987. I'd spent a year um, DJing in Spain. I came back and um, I heard from a, a friend of mine. She had some really cool tapes from this guy. And I sort of thought that was, you know, some hot stuff at mixing um, and in had some good records. And this guy's tapes were really good. So I said, who is him? And she said, oh, he's a friend of mine, Jonathan Moore. And then I didn't meet up with him until... Um, a couple of years later when I wanted to make a record inspired by the tracks coming out of New York, uh, particularly the early hip-hop cut-ups by people like Grandmaster Flash and also a series of records by Double D and Steinsky from New York. And I met Jonathan in a second-hand record shop called Reckless Records in the Soho in London. And he was working there and we were... You know, second-hand record shops were great places. They still are, actually. It's still yeah. there, Reckless Records. Because that's where you meet the heads. Yeah, That's yeah. where you met the other people who are really passionate about music. Um, and uh, so I started talking with Jonathan, and we both worked out that we were the only two guys in London insane enough to have paid £45 each for a, a copy of Double D and Steinsky's Lesson 3, <laughs> which was a sort of bootleg um, that, you know, we'd got numbers one and two, and we had to have the the, the next installment because these were just so next level in terms of what they were doing with um sort of the hip-hop 
sound and aesthetic, but um, taking it to a level of humor and um, using this montage technique that it was just really cool. And it's like, well, we want to do something like that. So I said to John, well, I've been working on a mix a bit like that. It's only been recorded on cassette tape, but do you want to have a listen? And he said, sure, bring it in. Um, so I brought it in. I remember him, he, he remarked that quite a few people had said like, oh yeah, I'm going to do something like that but, and I'll bring you a tape. But none of them actually turned up. Well, I did turn up and I remember being in Reckless, giving John the tape and then sort of watching him nervously out of the corner of my eye whilst I riffled through the, the racks of records. Because John was quite well known as a DJ on the London Rare Groove scene and I was completely unknown and he was nodding his head and smiling. And uh, the upshot of that was we decided to release a record as Cold Cut and that was called Say Kids, What Time Is It? Hmm. And we thought, well, let's make some more records. How did Ninja Tune come about? So to sort of um, cut a, a long story short, John and I make some other records and we had some quite big hits in the UK. And whilst that was great, the problem side was that we, we became entangled in the music business, which we didn't really understand and got into a contractual situation where some guys in, in suits were saying, well, look, you've got to make records like this. Um, and we didn't really know how to sort of crank the handle around and make more hits to order. And so we started a different identity so that we could release the kind of music we wanted to make. Um, and we started the label to do that after a trip to Japan, where we came up with the idea of the Ninja Tune concept. And that was our next level uh, that was our next independent label. And we started with some alter egos like DJ Food and Bogus Order and um, just releasing stuff that we were making on a, on a more underground level. Because you know, once you've tasted that big success, there is a lot of pressure to keep coming up with things that are successful and make a lot of money. But we didn't, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to plow our own furrow and do what we were interested in. So Ninja Tune was our sort of escape vehicle from the swamp of the... Um, mainstream music business which we found ourselves kind of stuck in as you said it's very easy to get involved in the business side of things with the suits all the time which is disconcerting for any creative person and now with ninja tune you're sort of straddling that line how did you reconcile that <laughs> good question i mean a friend of ours a jazz dj patrick forge says that colca have always rather unsteadily straddled the balance between the underground and the overground and but then you know keeping a balance should be a dynamic thing otherwise it would be too easy um we've sort of had a foot in both camps and we've sort of managed to make it work now ninja tune have a a motto that pete peter quick who's been a big part of the success of the label he he's the boss of the label now um he was a friend of a friend who just phoned up one day and said I want to work for a small dance label. So I said, well, come on down and check us out. And he, he never left. That was 30 years ago. Um, Peter says, careful with the cash, crazy with the music. And that's, we've adopted that. I, I think we must be okay at the business side. I think particularly that was what Pete brought as well. Um, his family business is Quick's Organic Cheese, actually, which is <laughs> <laughs> fine, fine cheese and fine beets are not so different. Um, it's a family business. And um, Ninja Tune is a bit of a cottage industry. But we did, having been through that um, contractual morass with the business and also 
the label we were previously with, when we audited them, we've, our auditor told us that they owed us 300,000. We never got it. Mm. And I'm sure you, you're well aware that in the music business, people don't always get paid what they're owed. Um, and there are a lot of sharks around. I think broadly, things might be a bit more honest nowadays than they used to be. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to get paid and artists for artists, it's sometimes hard to get paid. Um, and so that was one of the backbone philosophies of Ninja Tune, that it would be artist led. We wouldn't club our artists over the head and tell them what to do. And we would pay them, uh, fairly and account clearly and, and squarely to them. And so we started attracting, you see, after we started initially, we just released our own music under these different aliases. And then we started attracting other artists who liked the philosophy and um wanted to to be on the label and so we attracted some great artists like bonobo and cinematic orchestra and uh you know now there's quite a big roster on the label and it's grown into uh, for an independent quite a decent sized company but i like to think that we've kept true to that original mandate of respecting the artists and and being fair treat doing business in a fair way. Has that been difficult? You'd have to ask, you'd have to ask Pete. I, I got to say that, you know, many artists would probably agree that dealing with the business side of things is not really what they want to be spending their time doing. They would like to work with someone that can take care of that side of things for them. And for us, we were very lucky to find Peter quick. And then he, you know, we built up a fantastic team of people at Ninja. Um, who do that. I think people at Ninja, you know, we're still around. We're celebrating our 30th year as Ninja Tune this year. And um, so we must be getting it right. But I do see that people there work extremely hard. And it's a constant um, challenge to evolve to the changing sands of the environment. And that is particularly true in the music business. Um, but I like to think that compared to the major corporations, we're a sort of, they're a bit like dinosaurs and we're the small, funky kind of nimble mammals that can kind of jump and skip around and perhaps adapt a bit more quickly to the changing situation. So we've managed to keep going, I think, with that attitude. There's so much of the uh, do-it-yourself attitude approach to things for artists these days. But as you say... When it comes down to it, an artist wants to create more than anything and would do anything to have someone else take over the burden of the marketing and getting their music out there, which is why, you know, labels will always be around because no matter how much you know, you still need that helping hand. Well, you, yeah, everyone needs support. No man is an island and it is very hard to do everything yourself. I mean, when people ask, you know, how can I get signed to Ninja Tune? I sometimes say, well, you know, have you considered doing it yourself? Because that's how we started. Can point out that John and I did start the label ourselves, so we would have that control and that responsibility ourselves. Um, and we did put, for a good time, sufficient energy into that to make a sort of a machine that did basically work. You know, this is even even before we started Ninja Tune. Actually, we we self-released our first records ourselves. We used to sell them out of John's car around a few record shops in London. Um, and so it's lovely to have people that can help you and take on roles like that. It's also 
possible to get ripped off by people that you work with. You know, along comes you know, managers, particularly it's quite some shark like characters in the music business. Yeah. Um, and they'll come along and say, yeah, you know, come in here, dear boy, have a cigar, as Pink Floyd said, and um, we'll sort everything out for you. But it doesn't always work out as simply as that. Um, and sometimes, you know, certain, I remember someone saying, talking about a manager we were involved with who remained nameless at this stage, but, you know, managers with egos like that, they, the artist can never be bigger than the manager. Mm. The manager's ego must always, in fact, be larger. They might be in the background, but they still, in fact, in their mind, are the main player. So I'd say in this life, a lot of it is about relationships and finding people that you can trust and that you have common ground with of beliefs and principles and can get along with. And that could be in any aspect of life and certainly in the music business. That is important, too. Now, I'm certainly aware of you and Cold Cut and Ninja Tune from a musical standpoint, but what I wasn't aware of, and now I understand because of your background, because of you telling me, but getting into software development and products. Yeah. And I think the first one is VJAM, right? Well, in fact, there were quite a few um, strange multimedia creative bits of software that we made in, in the 90s. Um, VJAM was a major one, but there were things before that. Um, for example, when we released our Let Us Play album, which I think was 96, it came with a CD-ROM, and on that CD-ROM were videos, but also interactive software. Uh, I call them play tools because they're sort of toys, but they could also, they pointed to a more serious use of multimedia for creative purposes. Um, and I, I still meet people who say, well, actually, that CD-ROM um, that was a big influence on me. It wasn't commercially successful, but it was part of our artistic statement of the time that music didn't just need to be about tunes on the CD. There could be interactivity, there could be audiovisual elements, there could be um, infotainment elements to it as well. So, yeah, there's been quite a few um, sort of not, none of them have been successful products. I mean, that, that did help the CD sales, I think, can help get us PR. But um, until recently, making successful products that sell and get us a return um, had eluded me. It was more in the nature of sort of research and development. But um, uh, that we recently made a product uh, in partnership with Ableton, who make the fantastic live Ableton Live software. And that's been successful. But in the old days, you know, VJAM, I, I faced considerable resistance from my colleagues actually because they were like well matt we know about selling music and that's hard enough and now you're asking us to try and make these boxes and get them into software distributors and into computer shops we have no idea how to do that um, and in fact they were right it was very hard from a standing start to do that but i felt that like i say these were they're almost um statements on the state of electronic music and about DJing and remixing and what those things actually were. And so um, I'm sort of doing a retrospective of them at the moment getting, I'm in the process of trying to buy an old um, Commodore Amiga computer <laughs> actually, which we, <laughs> we wrote this crazy interactive CD-ROM for. Um, it could be the first, what they call CD plus, which I define as, you know, a CD plus a bunch of other stuff. It had a game on it, had some relaxation visuals, 
um, it had some information on it. And but now we don't have that old computer anymore, so I need to go on eBay and find one so that <laughs> I can <laughs> rediscover our, our archaeology. Um, but yeah, it's been an interesting journey with, uh, like I say, research and development and adding, seeing where electronic music can have other dimensions to it. Which brings us to Jam Pro. Okay. Well, I can say that it's a 25-year project because round about that time of Let Us Play, John and I were going to go out and do a live tour. And we came to the States, actually, and did this audiovisual tour. And, and I noticed that electronic acts like us, when they wanted to play live, there were a, a few ways of doing your show live, but I didn't particularly think that any of them were really in line with the sort of aesthetic and the philosophy of, of hip hop and electronic music. Um, some bands decided that they would take their whole studio on the road with them, um, a nightmare to set up and yeah, prone, prone to disaster. Then other bands decided they'd get in a bunch of session musicians who'd learn, who'd learn all the samples that they'd used in the studio and then play that as a live uh, band. A massive attack turned that into a very successful format, actually. But initially, they were just a bunch of DJs and with loops and samples like us. And then other acts just say, OK, well, we'll just, we, we won't do a live show. We'll DJ our tracks or we'll just play our tracks you know, as they are. Um, and we wanted to do something else. So that was the, the evolution of what became Jam. And the first version of that was called D-Jam, in fact. That was never out on the market, but it was something John and I used, um, a four-track loop mixer where we could take our um, tracks. The word stems wasn't in evidence then, but that was what we would do. We'd go, when we were mixing a track, we'd mix it out, and we'd mix out all the individual elements with the effects on, and then we'd take them and chop them into loops and load them into DJAM so that we could kind of perform them live and remix them as well. And um, yeah, that was part of our audiovisual show in the 90s. And then when the iPhone came out, I thought this is a perfect time to re-engage re with this. This is an excellent device. Um, and so then we started developing our own software for the Apple platform. And that the first uh, version of that was called Ninja Jam. And that was released in 2013. So that is the sort of um, ancestor of Jam. But when Ninja Jam came out, we sort of mainly gave people music to remix from the Ninja catalog and our own catalog, because that's how Cold Cut were using it. We were taking our, our tracks, chopping them into loops, putting them into Ninja Jam, and then performing them live. And we also had tracks from Bonobo and Odessa and uh, Roots Maneuver and some other good artists on the label. Um, but what we heard was, well, actually, we want to make our own tracks. The interface is great, but I want to load my own samples into this. And um, I totally got that because, in fact, I'd wanted to make it like that from the beginning, but we developed it on quickly and on a tight budget, and we didn't take that route. I thought, totally, we get this. Let's make it into a fully featured music-making program. Jam Pro is, I think, a full production and live performance app for the iPad. I'd love to get it working on Android. I'd love to get it on the iPhone, but that will be a bit more work. But at the moment, the iPad is a, a really good platform for it. And when I do live shows now, I have two iPad Pros um, and a DJ mixer, a bit like having two turntables, and I can synchronize them together and bounce from one to the other like a, 
I used to do with decks. Um, it is quite a monster of a program. I'm just busy at the moment making a series of how-to videos um, to try and uh, make it, you know, a little bit easier to interface with. I, I, I think it's pretty easy to just dive in and get some sounds out of. And I, I want people to have that enjoyment of um, the, the, the enjoyment and excitement of messing around with electronic sound, which is what's been powering cold cut all these, these years, you know, playing with noise, playing with sound, remixing, mixing, creating, shaping sonic from blocks of sound. And um, that's there. And then if you want to take it deeper, it goes into uh, the, the, there are aspects to it that are almost like a modular synth. Do you know about modular analog synths? Oh, sure. I grew up with an ARP 2500, so yeah. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. I just saw Korg have done their new sort of take on that, which uh, I saw heard the other day and it's sounding great. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm overjoyed because in the mid 70s, I was a, a geek at school with my geek friends and we built a synthesizer each out of a kit in practical electronics. This is 1975. And um, then, you know, the synth thing happened, sampling happened. Um, and then there was the big sort of analog synth fetishism. But that was really only available to, uh, you know, collectors because that stuff got really expensive now. I mean, even like a 303, which, you know, they couldn't give them away. Now it's like $3,000, yeah, which yeah. is a lot of money. Um, and um, when I went to, uh, what's it called, Superbooth in Berlin a couple of years ago, my friend Dr. Walker, who used to be in this seminal techno group, Air Liquid, he's a great guy, he took me along to this uh, place in East Berlin. And suddenly I was there and there was like 300 companies in the funk house in Berlin, freaking out, making all these incredible modular and, and sort of, you know, weird ass audio equipment for, um, you know, quite a niche thing, but actually it's become a real interest zone. And I, I, I think it's great. So it's really a new scene. So that whole, um, modular synth attitude, which is okay. We're not just going to have things which just move in one direction. We want the possibility to patch combinations of sounds and controls together. And we don't necessarily, when you're starting out with making a patch, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. You're, you're literally experimenting um, as you build your, your patch. And Jam Pro has capacities in it to do that because it has all these modulation sequences which you can assign to any of the parameters. And um, I am building some some patches for the sets which are going to go out there. And I'm literally finding the, the possibilities of, of this um, new instrument as I'm playing with it. And I think that other people probably take it, take it further as well. So there's a lot you can do um, with Jam to come up with uh, experimental, unexpected results. There's also a lot of capacity for performing live with it. Um, what I like about it is that you've got everything, um, there at your fingertips. So when you, you see the, um, it's a bit hard to describe over the radio, but you've got a screen with different controls on and they respond to touch. 
the controls are labeled and some of them trigger different samples. The name of the sample is of the clip is there. So your kind of eye and ear and hand coordination is kind of, is all in one place. And to me, that is a, it's kind of the expressive environment that I've been looking for to mess around with sound. So that's why we say it's a production and live performance app. How much is it? It's going to be 20 pounds or I think $20 in the US. And the first week it's going to be 10, $10. That sounds like a great deal considering how versatile it is. Thank you. Um, a friend of, uh, it's a, a guy actually, last week I had the first uh, demonstration for a guy for Music Tech uh, magazine and he asked me how much it was. I said, um, it's going to be $20. And he said, wow, it should be $99.99. So that was a nice reaction from someone who, who knows his music gear. Um, ideally, I'd like to give it away, actually. Um, I'd like, I, my ambition is to make the world's most powerful beat instrument and give it away so everyone can enjoy it and that will grow the the environment which i'm which i like to live in um we sort of it, the, if people don't have an ipad they can check out the original ninja jam which a lot the, the basic functionality is similar to jam pro jam pro is like 10 times more powerful but you can still have quite a buzz on ninja jam um and if i uh, can make a few bucks on on jam pro I want to look at bringing it to other platforms as well. Well, it sounds like the iPad is the perfect platform for something like that, because especially an iPad Pro, which is so powerful. But the fact is, it's a larger display where you can actually work with it. An iPhone, to me, is just a little small for something like that, although I can see people doing it because they're used to working on a small phone and doing what they do. But an iPad seems like the perfect platform. The iPad is a perfect platform, and actually, I'm working on a way that one can effectively network several iPads together. So that you know, if I had four iPad Pros, that'd be a pretty decent sized touchscreen instrument. To um, you know, I'd be able to have all the screens there at my fingertips. Um, but the it's been designed so that when you're playing live, all the main screens are there on the play screen, and then for sort of programming it and patching. There are other screens, but the idea is that you'd sort of do that in your preparation stage, and then you go to the play screen, and that's where you've got everything there. I don't like menu diving. I don't like page swapping. I don't like being, being a librarian when I just want to freak out and enjoy messing with the sound. That's really smart, though, because usually you find that the editing window and the play window is somewhat converged, and as a result, I don't think either one is easy to use as a result. So if you separate them, I think it's a much better approach. You know, me and my team that have put this together, we're not trained uh, software designers. Um, people, you know, bigger companies, proper companies have, you know, UX, user experience designers, and we've just been making it up as we go along. But I think, um, do you have an iPad? Yeah, I do. Well, hopefully you'll have a chance to tell it, uh, to you'll have a chance to check it out and, and tell us what you think. I think we've made a good stab at um, making something that's powerful and yet easy to use and is fun to use live. So I do, you know, look forward to your, your feedback about that. So the user can actually upload his or her own samples then, right, to it? Yes. Yeah, you've got full capability to load in your own samples. 
Um, and that includes accessing them via Dropbox or G Drive, you know, cloud services like that, or what you've got located on your machine. Um, you can also record in using a variety of sources. You can record in directly from the mic. So on the little demonstration video, which I'll, I'll link you to, um, there's a short bit where I'm just on the mic making some beatbox sounds and then playing them back. But you can also plug in, I have a nice little Behringer UCA222, I think it's called, which is only $20. Really good little interface. So I can plug in any sound, any sound source and record directly into the app. And I can also use um, inter-app audio. Um, I'm not an Apple fanboy, um, but I will give them props for over the years, they have prioritized making their audio work. And I think that's been a big part of their success, actually, because it nets them a huge audience of, of music hipsters, and that's played very well for them. And they did that with, with, the, with the Mac range, and they did it with iOS as well. Um, and one of the things they've done is this inter-app audio that enabled um, developers like Audiobus and AUM, AUM, that's another one, to make these routing systems where you can route audio about between the different apps. So there's some great synth apps and drum machine apps already on the iPad. Before I was thinking, oh, well, I need to write, you know, synths and sequences and, and, and uh, other instruments and have them within Jam. But actually, all I need is to connect via interapp audio the excellent range of existing iPad sound making apps and I record them straight into Jam. So that's, uh, that's really turns it into a, a, a powerhouse. I don't know if you're aware, but the director of audio for Apple is Tomlinson Holman. And if you're not familiar with the name, you're certainly familiar with THX, which oh, yes. you see in theaters. Yeah. It's Tom Holman sure. Experiment. Okay. And the Tom Holman Experiment. I love it. Great. That's right. Okay. He was a chief yeah. scientist for Lucasfilm. And along the way, he built a lot of stuff. He was actually my mentor when I started to mix 5.1. Ah, he was the guy that actually named 5.1 and came up with the whole idea. But the last 10 years, he's been the head of audio, director of audio for Apple. Well, let's hear it from Tom then, because that, they've done some good work. That I will hand it to them. And so he's a, he's a dude. He's an inventor. He's, he's, he's got the, 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 the yen for it, and that's his, his passion, obviously. So he's still... And now he's find a place where he can deploy that and we can all benefit from it. So I say, yeah, nice one. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Pretty good. Okay. Last question, Matt, what is the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way, or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, I like Thelonious's monk statement that everyone is a genius at being themselves. <laughs> and I think Finding yourself in your creativity and in your interest and passion, that is the way that you can become an artist with an identity. As they say, don't try and be anyone else. Everyone else, so everyone else is taken. It's best just to be yourself. And I think that might not necessarily, there's, there's no one formula that leads to success in terms of a million dollar in fame, but success is pursuing what you love. And that's tied up with finding out who you are, what you're really interested in, and uh, making time to do that. There's always, uh, here's my business motto, there's always a workaround. 
Mm. When one way is blocked, there's there's always a way to get there. It just may not be the obvious way, and it's uh, down to each of us to find it. You can find out more about Matt at ninjatune.com. It's ninjatune, N-I-N-G-A-T-U-N-E, all one word, dot com. You can also find out more about JamPro at jampro.net. That's J-A-M-M-P-R-O, all one word, jampro.net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find an iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.